0: Hallelujah, Father, as we have been reminded by this song, the benefits and the future promises of salvation yet outweigh our experience such that they are too much for us to fathom. Through the eyes of faith, though, we join the forefathers of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who set their eyes to that city whose builder and maker is God. We have seen the work of Jesus Christ in constructing our own lives, convicting us of sin, setting us upon the rock, Fitting us as living stones within the body of Christ to a building, to a people, to a body that is worthy of his habitation. This has happened because the Holy Spirit has transformed us and continues to do so. By regeneration and sanctification, Lord, we embrace and thank you. Uh, We look more like Christ as you work in our hearts. Today, we open your scriptures, trusting that you will continue this process by proclaiming to our souls the beauty of salvation from the pages of your Scripture. We pray that its effect on us, the hearers, as it is proclaimed, is that we would be convicted to turn from any impostor, any confusion, Lord, any sin that would easily be set, or any competitor for your glory, or any false idol that we would seek to entertain in our culture or in our souls. Lord, that we would set Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, in the forefront of our attention, that as he is lifted up, that he would draw us and all men to praise him, that we might join the chorus of glory that sings forever, without end, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Lord, bless the proclamation of your word. Let it be offered and proclaimed in spirit and in truth, that it might benefit the hearer, and most of all, your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a glorious gift and opportunity it is to join in the worship of Jesus Christ and to do so in his holy name. Today we are in Genesis 49. You may turn there if you have your scriptures. In a moment we'll stand for the reading of verses 1 through 12. The title of this morning's sermon is Jacob's dying song. This is a song or a poem that David or that Jacob, excuse me, gives as both a prophecy and a blessing over his sons as he is approaching death's door. The aim of this morning's message is to consider these words in context, at least as we begin to unfold this chapter in the Genesis account, to behold the theme of Jacob's song in the context of God ordering history, the context of sovereign history. With that, as you're able, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand for the reading of the same? Hear now the scriptures which proclaim to us the truth that will never change. Genesis 49, 1-12, here is the word of God. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willing, willfulness... They hamstrung the oxen. Curse be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth Are whiter than milk. This is the word of God. You may be seated. There is interesting and poetic language that we consider in the context of our passage today. And today will be an introduction to the legacy of Judah and my closing point. But most of all, we'll consider the lesson of Reuben, the lesson of Simeon and Levi, and then introduce this figure of Judah and what his family line prophesies and portends for the future. As I'm sure when we were reading, some allusions to that came to mind, namely that there will be a royal dignity, an eternal power, a throne that will never be dethroned that we can expect from this family. These are interesting words for sure, especially in light of their context, not only during the time of Jacob's life, but the life of the people of God far beyond this point. Later in this message, we'll touch upon two reference points, primarily this one in Deuteronomy 33, because there Moses reiterates in similar language and a similar occasion, prophecies and blessings over the tribes of Israel. A subtitle for today's today's sermon might be Patriarchal Prophecy, that is, the Word of God through the family leader, through the father leader, patriarch, father leader, prophecy, the Word of God. The Word of God is coming by way of Jacob in his final moments at death's door. He is bringing things into perspective and giving a charge to the next generation who will follow him. We consider the significant context of these events recorded in Genesis 48 and 49. Jacob takes the occasion of his own looming death to communicate to his sons, the next generation, their covenantal identity, who they are, that is, as the people of God. As we have noted in the context as well, remember that as far as Jacob is concerned, and indeed the sovereign hand of God, this family nation is not to be swallowed up in the cultural influences of a pagan land. He's giving this charge while they are yet in Egypt. My apologies for allergies. We'll get through this by the grace of God. This family nation is not to be swallowed up in the cultural influences of this pagan land, namely Egypt. You recall, the famine has caused the family to move far from home. They're surrounded by the intimidating forces and uh, situation in Egypt, its rulers, its wealth, and the dependency of all the known world upon them. At this point, you could think under ordinary circumstances, this family's identity would be swallowed up. As there are just 70 among thousands, millions perhaps, who are worshiping these imposing gods in a prosperous land. Save Joseph, who is their representative that rules under the authority of Yahweh. The rest of the environment would be a constricting, no doubt suffocating influence upon them. Yet Jacob rises to the occasion upon his death to declare to his family, you will find your identity not in Egypt but in the plans and purposes of God to preserve this family line, according to His covenant hope that a Messiah will one day come. They are distinctly chosen, appointed unto the Lord's purposes in their future Canaan habitation. Imagine the oppression an event like this would leave upon your family. And this, by the way, is evidenced here as it is recorded in in the Scriptures. One of the reasons, provisionally speaking, why we can read Jacob's words is because of the impression that they left upon his family. Thus, they were recorded and preserved and eventually written down. Have you ever been to a funeral of a close loved one? I've probably mentioned this as an illustration in the context of this chapter in Genesis before, but for me, I'm always reminded of it. Some of you were there at my father, or grandfather's burial excuse me, um, a few years back. My grandfather was instrumental in my family. He was really the first generation believer of now multiple generations. Before my father passed away, we had the opportunity... Grandfather, excuse me. Uh, My dad's going to be upset with this sermon if I don't correct the record. So before my grandfather passed away, there were several times when we met with him, you know, our family and so forth. And as for me, I communicated to him my conviction to follow in the example that he led to lead his family in righteousness and to stand for christ and for the truth in other words i committed to my grandfather to take up the torch of his legacy that is christ and ministry uh, in for the lord's glory and my family into the future and at his funeral we were throwing shovelfuls of dirt we literally filled his grave with our own shovels and that moment that my brother helped to organize it created such an impression upon my soul that I didn't soon forget my commitment, my grandma's, grandpa's uh, legacy, but it sticks with me. That's just an illustration to uh, remind us of the significance of the moment that we have here. Similar circumstances have taken place. This man represents the word of God and the anointed servant of God, the patriarch to whom God has spoken. God has revealed himself in person to on multiple occasions. We are about to lose him. We will be lost and aimless unless we can take up something assuredly from our Father to carry forward in the next generations as they will have to wait centuries, 400 plus years, for many of these fulfillments to come to pass, even returning to their own promised land. Later in the Scriptures, Moses in Deuteronomy 33 does something similar. It's his final blessing over the tribes, his dying song. It provides a shared context with our passage today. Uh, note that for future study and we'll reference both because I think it helps to give us a bigger picture of God's purposes with these songs and how His, wor- his uh, plans are taking place in history. They are being fulfilled. As this, Moses, patriarchal leader, is approaching his own deathbed hundreds of years later, he once again calls attention to the sovereign perspective regarding the purposes of God for His people, distinct to their tribes. A little background, just to set the stage for the context. And now let's consider this morning the initial portion of this song. The gospel message of Jacob's sons, that's my heading, as follows. Number one, the legacy of Reuben, uh, verses one through four. Number two, the legacy of Simeon and Levi, verses five through seven. And just by way of introduction, this morning I plan to preach a dedicated message to the legacy of Judah. We'll introduce it, though, to this morning in point number three, the legacy of Judah, 8 through 12. So that's my basic outline for you today. Listen, as the scriptures are proclaimed, they are relevant for us today, even as they are relevant as a milestone or as a signpost in God's covenant history. There is a philosophy of history that the Bible proceeds under. I've submitted this to you before, but I think it bears repeating. What is the biblical philosophy of history? That is, what are the big picture frames of reference that the Bible assumes to say this is an important event and this is a less important event? That, by the way, is a philosophy of history, right? So somebody might say, oh, my philosophy of history is to record everything that's important to the life of George Washington, And so then you write a book, a biography on this man. So that's assuming a philosophy of history. The Bible has one of those. And I submit to you, it is this, time measured by the progress of redemption. Time measured by the progress of redemption. That's how the Bible is written, big picture scope. The young people know this. They're completing almost three years of studying the big picture of the Bible. That is the time, history, God's purposes, or as measured by God's purposes, to glorify himself and to save for himself a people. And when we keep that in our mind, passages like this become illuminated. We tend to see their importance in greater context, I suggest, much more readily. So what is the gospel message of Jacob's sons? What is the legacy of Reuben in light of the big picture? Consider again, Genesis 49, 1 through 4. Then Jacob called his sons and said, "'Gather yourselves together.'" that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So you see there the context. This is the introduction. He's calling their attention a family reunion. These are the last breaths that he can muster, the last of his energy, summoning his strength, aided by the Holy Spirit, as I trust. And he is giving them an authoritative proclamation with fading eyes and a dying voice and perhaps a wavering tone but the, those boys, as they gather, these men now, as they gather and hear their father's proclamation, they cling on every word. They know something significant is going on. Their future, which naturally speaking, would be totally insecure so far from home in Egypt. They're receiving instructions from their father who has heard from the Lord in a priestly role directly the message that they need to point their, themselves, their families, and their nation eventually towards God's pur- to, toward God's purposes in the future, the days to come. For he goes, he continues this way, verse two: assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. We're reminded of the central role in this era of history of the patriarchal leader. The patriarchal leader served as something of a priest and something of a prophet. Later on, under the Mosaic order, there would be more divisions of labor, if you will. These offices would be granted to individuals who would serve in that role. But during this time, Abraham was the priest. He would hear from God. He was a prophet. He would declare the truth to his family. Likewise, Isaac was called to take the word to uh, to the prophet, if you will, Abraham, and then give it to his family. Likewise, Jacob, and now he is doing the same. Now, this order of things will soon give way to further development with actual prophets and priests called and anointed. But it's important to hear this in context. This is the word of God that is coming by way of his anointed agent. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. But this is more than just an ordinary father speaking. This is the father of the faith. This is the father of the faithful. This is the father of those who worship and serve, submit to the covenant of Yahweh. And then he speaks... Addressing his sons one at a time. Verse three Reuben. And Reuben sits up and leans a little closer, as I imagine. Yes, Father. Just adding a little embellishment. Here is the the scripture as recorded. Verse three You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. You can see Reuben nodding in your head, in your mind almost. He goes on preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Then there's a shift, verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it, he went up to my couch. You can almost see the crestfallen look on Reuben's face. What is the legacy of Reuben? According to Jacob, Reuben stands for the insufficiency of physical, natural, worldly strength. He may be the strongest. He may be the most respected by other worldly men. Culturally, he may have had the prominence and the position, the assumption of glory that came with being the firstborn. But these are not the standards that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jacob uses to judge God's purposes and the character of men. This theme has been recurring, by the way, through the scriptures. Man places faith and judges strength and capability and influence and places their hopes in heroes for the future that are externally verified. They're men of uh, strength and height and exploits and influence, right? So if you're Isaac, you might prefer Esau over Jacob. Esau, the great and mighty hunter. Jacob, the tent dweller, the mama's boy. If you're Abraham, you might favor Ishmael a bit. He seems to be more uh, uh, strong and uh, have an independent streak and have worldly strength and exploits to his name. But nevertheless, God calls not Ishmael, but Isaac. Even Ephraim and Manasseh, as Jacob extends his blessing hands, he crosses them so that not the firstborn receives the blessing, but Ephraim, the secondborn, is favored. All this to teach us. That God does not favor or look upon the outside, but God looks on the heart. This was true, of course, in the calling of David. The parade of sons, more capable than he, by worldly measure, were given to the prophet or were presented to the prophet. Each one refused until the youngest, the shepherd, the lowly, was chosen. The legacy of Reuben, pride and presumption are wicked and volatile masters. Reuben blasphemed the law of God, wielding his power and privilege as the firstborn abusively, violating others for personal gain. There's one single verse that records an incident that Jacob refers to here in Genesis 35. We go back to this verse, verse 22, and read, While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. That's all we read until Genesis 49 and come to find out an act like that carries generational consequences, and it is a serious infraction against God's law and against the covenantal parameters that He has set up. This apparently passing reference to this violation of His father's wife or concubine, Bilhah, now proves to yield generational significance. Sins of pride and presumption are wicked and volatile masters, and blaspheming the law of God, taking advantage of others and abusing your power, and sins of uh, this nature of sexual immorality that violate the covenants that are to be held sacred are serious. And thus, Reuben, on account of this, is disinherited. The law would later reflect God's purposes and covenantal priorities in this regard by the so-called uncovering the nakedness of the father. It's more than just sexual immorality that's going on here. It's also a willful and active disrespect of the covenant leader of the home. How serious is is it, young people, to honor your father and mother? Extremely serious. And the legacy of Reuben tells us this much. He disregarded the covenant relationship his father had with one of his brides. He willfully violated those exclusive terms laid out in God's Word. He says, I will, by the strength of my own purposes, my own intentions and power and privilege as the firstborn, disregard the relationship that God has established between that who is to be respected and revered, my father and myself. And as he did so, just like the law of God says, he did not live long in the land and prosper in the same way he otherwise would have. But lost his inheritance because the law of God is not to be trifled with, and sins of this matter are serious. Deuteronomy 33.6. As I said before, there's another dying song, and the two are parallel in so many ways. We pick up on Moses' own confession as he approaches death door. The anointing of the Spirit has equipped him to proclaim something of truth to the next generation as well. And this is what he says with regard to Reuben, Deuteronomy three six, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. According to Moses, that's it, by the way, for Reuben, this short and direct confirmation of the prophecy of Jacob is reiterated, it's stated again, in spite of the passing centuries. Let Reuben live and not die, there's grace there, however, his men will be few. What is Reuben's lesson? Well, to sum it up, what does his testimony teach us about submitting to the covenant? Well, by way of cautionary tale, the following at least. With regard to sin, sins of power, pride, sexual immorality, and presumption will destroy a household, but they will also destroy a people and destroy a society. You think of Reuben's culpability in the matter. He had received a lesson himself from his own prior family member, Lot, and the fallout of Sodom. But Reuben did not heed the word of God that was given by way of this lesson, that breaking the covenant and living as you so choose, whether you're dangerously close to the wickedness of the cities of the plains, like Lot was, or whether you fully indulge this cultural depravity as the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah did, the lesson was flee. Flee where? Back to the less fertile But secure location, the Oaks of Mamre, where your covenant father Abraham hears from God and dwell where the word of God abides and where the priest who speaks to him, the father leader and the patriarch, has heard from the Lord. This is where you are secure. Don't get an idea that outside of God's order and purposes and covering and the way that he speaks, I have a better notion and then pursue that to do so that is to violate God's covenant terms with regard to these presumptuous notions is to set yourself up or your society up for destruction. We should not trust ourselves. We should not trust our own strength. We should not trust the ideas of those around us that serve as a stand-in for the word of God. We should honor and hold to the terms of God's covenant, and we should do so recognizing with fear that the stakes are high. Secondly, Reuben's lesson with regard to salvation. It matters not your earthly station. You know, I mentioned to you that by the grace of God, I come from a legacy of a, of a Christian home. However, the scriptures are the same and apply in each individual case, whether you were born to believing parents or not, you must be born again. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. However, Reuben must be born again. Uh, we should lean not on or take refuge in situations like ethnicity, culture, tradition, birth order, family, history, whether good or bad, when it comes to salvation. No, remember the message to Nicodemus in John 3, 1-3, through himself a man of preeminence, you must become like a child, that is, submit humbly to the word of God. You must be born again. The Lord must change your heart. You must repent and turn to him, the word of Christ, to this other man of some preeminence. Ages later, millennia later, reiterated this legacy that Reuben illustrated to the negative, that without a change of heart, without a resurrection of the soul, without a humility of repenting of pride, and your own ideas, and becoming like a child, there is no thriving in the kingdom of heaven. Luke 9, 46-48, unless you become like a child, you will not inherit the uh, blessings of the covenant, if you will, the kingdom of heaven. And John 3, 1-3, no matter who you are, of prominence, preeminence, which means super important, a man of privileged birth, a man of high station, or somebody who feels they have a lot to work with or lean on, And so forth, no matter who you are, you must be born again. This is the legacy of Reuben. Secondly, legacy of Simeon and Levi, verses 5 through 7. Jacob now declares over them the following, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. By the way, in a moment we'll compare this to Moses' oracle as well. But when it came to the land allotments, who would get this area and who would get that area, it's interesting that this proclamation of Jacob held fast. Both Simeon and Levi would not receive ordinary land allotments. The most that they would get by way of private property, land guarantee, was cities here or there. And these purposes of God go all the way back to this prophecy and proclamation from Jacob in Genesis 49. According to Jacob, the covenant compromising violence of these sons dishonored their father's headship and once again dishonored the law of God. When they took matters into their own hands and slaughtered their neighbors. But it was more serious than that, turn with me if you would, Oh, we'll pause for a moment. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 33. We'll touch upon a follow-up in the words of Moses. Later, we'll go to Exodus 32. But here, it was more than just slaughtering the neighbors. God had sometimes given Israel, under extraordinary circumstances, of course, the call to defend themselves, and sometimes the charge to slaughter the unbeliever as his instrument of justice in the land. This was not one of those occasions. Instead, Simeon and Levi acted deceitfully. They were upset because what they considered to be the violation of their sister Dinah. So they tricked the man. The men said, well, we would like to marry in and be included in the covenant with you. And they said, tell you what, if you're circumcised, receive the sign of the covenant and join us, then we'll allow you to have our daughter in marriage with this a guy who had uh, taken a fancy to her. And then what happens? While they're healing from their covenant initiation, The uh, brothers exploited this circumstance, violated their own promise and covenant, and came in and slaughtered the place, killed a bunch of animals as well. And this was taking vengeance into their own hands, disregarding the word of God, and thus the consequences once again are significant. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their weapons of violence and their swords are not impressive to Jacob and instead disqualify them from the inheritance to some degree as well. It'll be the fourth in line before we get a real blessing to the positive, that is Judah. In the meantime, we're reminded that these things carry with them consequences. Deuteronomy 33. Turn, there, turn back there with me. There's, interesting, there's an interesting shift over the years with regard to Levi. And we can see this in context as Moses picks up this oracle of God's purposes through the tribes, beginning in verse 8, we have the following over Levi. Notice Simeon is excluded. Moses doesn't even pronounce a blessing one way or the other or a prophecy one way or the other over Simeon in fulfillment of what Jacob had laid out hundreds of years before. Of Levi, however, he says, verse 8, give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one whom you tested at Massa. Those, by the way, were implements that the high priests would have. A little mysterious to us, but they represent priestly role and authority. Thummim and Urim. With whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. You shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. You shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord... His substance and accept the work of his hands, crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. So, according to Jacob, Simeon and Levi were compromised by their covenant breaking violence. According to Moses, there's an exception now with Levi. There's confirmation of Jacob's dying song by way of Simeon, but when it comes to Levi, something has happened. His blessings over Levi is striking, that is Moses, in a different way. As his tribe, this tribe, is anointed for the priestly calling of service. So Levi, in spite of what Jacob prophesies, now is appointed in service of the people to serve in a priestly role, teaching the law and facilitating tabernacle worship. This raises a question. What accounts for the change of Levi's fortunes? What accounts for the change of Levi's fortunes? And this brings us to Levi's lesson. So turn with me to Exodus 32. I apologize a bit of working with, or a bit of travel through a number of passages this morning, but these are significant moments of kind of transhistorical context, so it's helpful to touch on several locations. In Exodus 32, 25, this is the moment, by the way, where the fortunes of Levi shift. And it is intense. And when Moses saw, this is right after the golden calf incident, by the way, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, and Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. So imagine the picture. Moses comes down from receiving the law written by the very finger of God, two tables in his hands. As historians surmise, one copy representing the Lord's copy as a covenant, a sovereign or suzerain, and the other copy representing the people's uh, people's copy of this written covenant between them. It's hard to imagine a more solemn moment of time measured by the progress of redemption than the giving of God's authoritative law. And he, Moses, face to face with the Almighty, bearing the word of his instructions for the people for all time, a message that rings uh, true with as much authority today as it was when it was given, looks down across the landscape of the camp, and what does he see? Not prayer that Yahweh would speak to Moses, no, but instead, wanton rebellion. Worshiping these two crudely made, as I imagine, golden calves, and cavorting around just like their wicked neighbors do. These people, in just a short amount of time, while Moses is on the mountain, hearing from God himself, have given themselves over to lasciviousness and idolatry, pagan worship. And this is his response. Thus says the Lord, or Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Guess who came to the Lord's side? Guess who separated themselves from this idolatrous worship? Guess who at great cost renounced the golden calf worship? It was the sons of Levi all the sons of Levi, verse 26, gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. It's hard to imagine a more intense situation. Brother, companion, and neighbor, those who stand with the Lord will be used as his instrument of justice to bring the consequences of sin even death itself upon the unrepentant ones 28 and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and that day about 3000 men of the people fell listen Moses said today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord this is where the fortunes of Levi shift they go from the sort of the outcast overlooked in The society of God's people and purposes now to ordain for the service of the temple eventually. And it came at a great cost. Moses goes on, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. What is the lesson of Levi? The lesson of Levi comes by way of an extremely dramatic, intense and traumatizing in some ways, if you looked at it just on the surface, backstory. This tribe was used as God's disciplining hand, God's hand of judgment against their apostate countrymen at the golden calf incident. Their restoration, their calling came at great cost, the cost of human blood. Levi's lesson, you can see parallels here, teaches us that so does our restoration. That is, our restoration comes at great cost as well. Our restoration, in fact, yes, comes at the cost of human blood. There was something, notice how Moses continues. He says, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. People are slaughtered. The priestly patriarchal figure is going up the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement. You see, there's a hope for atonement. There's the slaughter of the wicked. There's a sort of redemptive arc for the people of Levi. These passages are preparing us for the gospel. There is a great prophet. There is a great priest whose atonement is secure. Moses says, blot me out of your book only if but these people can be saved. He says, alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, uh, but, but if not, please blot me out of your book you have written. Ultimately speaking, In spite of the 3,000 that died, and even if Moses were to give his life, that atonement, though it may be symbolic, would not have been sufficient. But the restoration of Levi points to the cost of human blood for gospel restoration later that would come by the greater Jacob and the greater Moses. The great prophet, priest, Jesus Christ, would give his life as a ransom for many. We see this later in the scriptures, Matthew 20, 28 uh, Luke 22:19 19 through 20. Take this cup. It is my spilled blood. Eat this bread. We celebrate this and remember, of course, in communion, for your first Sunday of the month. Eat this bread. Drink this cup. It is my blood of the new covenant. Levi's lesson is that only the atoning death of Jesus Christ can restore the sinner to citizenship. God can restore our own legacy of family brokenness but only at the cost of the cross of Jesus Christ, and only when we put Christ first. Even over the cost, counting the cost of following him, even over our closest loved ones. I hasten to add that you, listening to this message, will not be required to bring a literal sword against your loved ones. But the Bible does say, in New Covenant terms, that Christ will sometimes bring a sword between you and your loved ones. That is to say, one day there will be a judgment and not every one of our loved ones will be, is promised to be saved. But on that day of reckoning with those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, hear that welcome into my fellowship forever on the price of my son's blood. When we hear that and then other loved ones are given this charge, depart from me, I never knew you, enter into suffering eternal because you did not accept my way of salvation. If that sword becomes, comes between you and your family, do, will you have a problem with that? That really is the legacy of Levi. Levi understood the tribe. Their highest allegiance was to the Lord. And the cost of restoration was the spilling of blood. <clears throat> they also knew that the consequences for sin were high. And the hope for atonement yet on the horizon here comes all the more clearly into view when we consider their legacy and light of Jesus Christ to come. What an incredible ending these traumatic stories are pointing to, but they teach us something along the way. The significance of the cost of redemption and the particular unblemished, sacrificed lamb of God, the only one who could satisfy its demands. The legacy of Reuben, the legacy of Simeon and Levi. Let's close this morning by considering the legacy of Judah, but just by way of introduction. Going back to our passage in Genesis 49, there's a significant shift. We go from Reuben, sorry buddy, because of your prior sin, you will not have the preeminence. Simeon and Levi, likewise. You will be scattered. Your violence has disqualified you. But then something different. Verse 8. Judah, your pro- brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. We, we don't have time to turn there, but we have extensive documentation of Judah's disqualification. In other words, Judah's legacy in part is salvation by grace through faith alone. So you might think, well, these guys did bad things. Judah did good things. Therefore, Judah is called. No, it's not quite that simple. Judah is called because God has rescued and ransomed him from disqualifying circumstances as he does every true believer. Every one of us stand before a perfect sovereign God disqualified for glory since Adam. But there are those, those who stand in the line of the tribe of Judah who God washes their sins away and makes presentable. And shades of this promise of the grace by faith Hope invested in God's purposes in the covenant as time measured by the progress of redemption marches forward are coming through the text. I want to make a case for you of this song's bullseye. So I was trying to come up with a term to describe a sort of symmetry of ideas that points us to what I submit is the summary main idea, the summary theme of this song. I'll just give you briefly, I'll show my work and then I'll return to that bullseye analogy. Now, the fancy name for this is chiastic structure, and it just means the shape of ideas that points to the center, right? We've talked about this before. But in the shape of this song, you have um, secondary, tribes of secondary importance, followed by a tribe of primary importance, secondary importance, bullseye. And then you have uh, secondary importance, primary importance, secondary importance. And what is the bullseye verse then? What if, if, my, if this construction of the song is valid in a sense that it points us to its main thrust and summary idea, which I believe it does, what would that be? Right in the middle, verse 18, is this verse. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's a standalone phrase that's not directly connected to any of the other, you know, blessings or prophecies over the individuals. But instead, I submit to you for your own study and verification that this is the theme of Jacob's song. Everything that's happening somehow serves the purposes of God's will in the future to save for himself a people. And oh, through the process of time, this waiting will give way to the Messiah. And speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Jacob knows this. And thus, if you will, the chorus of his song is, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. As the legacy of Judah continues to unfold, we find which one of the sons, that legacy, that hope will be fulfilled through. Indeed, it is Judah. More on that in a future message. But suffice it to say for now, we look at that bullseye of the song and we see a clue what's going on here. This symmetry brings into focus a great theme, not only of Jacob's song, but all of the scriptures that history waits, God's people wait for the salvation of the Lord. We have received Jesus Christ. We celebrate even this time of year that we're coming up to the incarnation, which is a huge fulfillment of God's arrival of the Savior's Son who would die in our place. But we are yet waiting for the salvation of the Lord to be fully manifest as he redeems this whole earth and ransoms all the elect to praise him in glory, as we often say, looking forward to the consummate kingdom of God. Furthermore, you might look at these two men of importance That is, there's two important legacies, Judah and Joseph. They're given the most time. Joseph, verses 22 through 26. Judah, verses 8 through 12. And there again, we might see something of a pattern. On the one hand, in the Old Covenant, you have Joseph as an appropriate representative figure. God will provisionally spare his people by appointing his son Joseph to supply bread in the wilderness and uh, through his administration to save the people. But then there's also Judah. Furthermore, one will come whose scepter will never be removed from his hand. Though Joseph's administration in Egypt has a shelf life and it will eventually be no more, there's going to be one that will sit on the throne and he will come from the line of Judah and his kingdom will never end. The legacy of Judah. The song's bullseye gives us hints. These two great eras that perhaps correspond to the legacy of Joseph. And the legacy of Judah gives us hint. This parallels, of course, our text today and the, uh, exp- the exposition. It parallels Psalm 122, that future hope of Jerusalem that held out that hope of worship and justice for David as he writes and served as a symbolic uh, figure in God's great purposes in this regard. And reading again just these first two, ver- or first verse, it's really interesting. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Do you see a second Joseph is prophesied of here? Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Listen, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Oh, wait, there's a second Joseph, if you will. There will be another one of Jacob's sons to, before whom his brothers and his countrymen and his fellow travelers, his covenantal, the, the, the covenant will bow down before? That's right, through the line of the tribe of Judah. There will be a second Joseph, if you will. Another one who will arise, whose brothers will praise him. Another one who will rule, before whom his people will bow down. And of course, we know this to be fulfilled in the future when the lion of the tribe of Judah arises. More on that in, the future, in uh, our next message. Jacob's dying song sets the stage for the rest of Scripture with the messianic hope that an eternal king will rise from the family line of Judah. And he will surpass, indeed, even the glory of Joseph. Who is he? Well, at this point, and close with this message, I talked to some of the young people um, in the young Sunday school class. So, young Sunday school class, if you kids want to come forward to the front, you guys are going to help me answer this question. So if you're in the young person Sunday school, don't be shy. Come on up. Come on, Fee, Ren, awesome. So as the kids are coming, let me ask the question again. Jacob's dying song sets the stage for the rest of Scripture with the Messianic hope. An eternal king will come from the line of Judah, surpassing the glory of Joseph. An eternal king will come who will be of great glory, surpassing that of Joseph. Who is he? And as the kids recite their verse, we're going to get the answer. This is Revelation. The seven angel blew his trumpet and roar loud voices saying this is the kingdom of our that has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and He will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said Hallelujah. You can have a seat, kids. Thanks. So in case you didn't catch it, with the chorus of voices, the young people this morning recited for us Revelation 11:15. 15. This is a future verse to which all of the Scripture points. It is one of those crescendos of fulfillment and glorious reality. It gives us the answer to the kingly hope yet on the horizon for Jacob and his sons thousands of years earlier. And it reads, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is Jesus Christ revealed in the revelation to John. He is the one from whom the scepter shall never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is our Lord and sovereign and Savior. Let's close this morning's message by thanking and praising him today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for the message of Scripture, which when we understand it, gives us such a genius account of your purposes from ages past to be fulfilled in the perfect, fulfilled or moment of the fullness of time. Lord, we stand on this side of the incarnation, recognizing with our eyes, our spiritual eyes opened by the Spirit to see that so much has come to pass of Jacob's prophecy and his hope for salvation that we have the greatest of riches as a people, the covenant people of God now alive today to be thankful for. We also thank you that we have more riches yet on the horizon if we cling to him. We know that if we are in Christ, we will rule and reign with him. And we look forward to the day when the kingdoms of this world become once and for all in every manifest way the kingdom of our Lord Christ, even as he reigns before the right hand of the Father right now. Lord Jesus, we declare our allegiance to you. You are our king and our sovereign. Help us to be better citizens of your kingdom and to obey your words and to apply them. Help us to take seriously the legacy of Levi, the legacy of Simeon and Reuben, and to repent and turn from wickedness. And help us to take seriously the legacy of Judah, wherein is our hope, the lion from that tribe who has saved us, the lion who also is a lamb who is slain for our sins. We exalt and glorify and magnify the name of Jesus Christ, our sovereign and savior. In his name we pray. Amen.